0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, it was the golden age of an empire, the Pax Romana, or Roman Peace, when Rome became the wealthiest and most formidable state in the history of humankind. Only the most brilliant of historians could convey the empire's scope and impact, but even that might be insufficient, because you'd need a novelist to properly relate. The incredible stories of Romans, both ordinary and spectacular. Luckily for us, we have both historian and novelist, and they are the same person. Tom Holland on War and Peace in Rome's Golden Age, today on the history of literature. <laughs> Okay, okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. The hunt is on, people. The hunt is on. Scholars and researchers are looking for a very special book, and we will tell you what that book is. And then we'll have Tom Holland, one of the most readable historians working in the world today. He began life, or his professional life, maybe I should say, as a novelist. Writing thrillers about things like Lord Byron as a vampire. And then his childhood love for history recaptured him and he turned to nonfiction. But he didn't lose that sense of what a reader wants. His eye for novelistic detail or his feel for narrative pace. He's a great storyteller and conversationalist too and I enjoyed... Talking to him. And because I'm feeling generous, we're getting into that holiday spirit here at the History of Literature. How about a little bonus content? We previously had another historian slash storyteller on our show, Honor Cargill Martin, who told us all about the Empress Messalina. You can find that show in our archives. Today, we'll ask Honor for a recommendation for the last book she will ever read. Which one? When the time comes, would she like to turn to? So we'll get a double dose of Roman Empire historians here today. But first, the hunt is on, and it involves Charles Dickens and his BFF, Wilkie Collins. Although maybe that should just be his BF, Best friend, but maybe not forever. Let me explain. One of the things I've always loved about Dickens is this friendship with Wilkie Collins. I love it when two individuals are paired together throughout history as equals or rivals, or maybe they started as rivals like Martina Navratilova and Chris Evert, Chris Evert Lloyd. But their rivalry, then Magic and Bird are another good example. Their rivalry gave them a bond that developed into friendship. Maybe because they could understand each other in a way that outsiders couldn't. Or maybe they complement one another in a certain way. The friendship of a, of a Jack Aubrey and a Stephen Maturin from the Patrick O'Brien novels. Or a Don Quixote and a Sancho Panza. Sancho? Sancho? <laughs> My pronunciation is all over the place today. Maybe they're Friendships. In spite of a kind of natural imbalance of power, Mozart and Salieri was that a friendship in the play and the movie? The friendship struggles to overcome feelings of jealousy and pride. Well, Wilkie Collins and Charles Dickens always struck me as a strong friendship that probably did have to overcome a few things. Dickens seemed to have valued Wilkie as a writer, and Wilkie seemed to have have enough success that he didn't mind living in a bit of a shadow of Dickens. Dickens the Great. Maybe they weren't quite Lennon and McCartney. Maybe more like Ringo and one of the others. He was good enough to be in the band and likable enough that that Dickens was glad to have him. And I suspected that Collins was grateful enough for Dickens' support, that he was glad to go along for the ride, like Ringo. Well, maybe that was true. Maybe that's how it was, but maybe there was a little more of George Harrison in him. Grateful to a point, but only to a point. Here's what we have. A book that has not been seen since 1890, when it was sold at an auction. We we can't consult the book itself because no one knows exactly what happened to it. Where it is. It's a copy of The Life of Charles Dickens, a biography by a man named John Forster. And this book belonged to Wilkie Collins, who had survived Dickens by a couple of decades. And it was found in Collins's library after he died in 1889. He had written in the margins, taken notes, annotations, his thoughts. And like I said, we don't have the book anymore, but we have a description of the book that was recorded in an article in the Paul Mall Gazette that was about the auction. And it seems from that article that in the book, Wilkie Collins kind of let loose. <laughs> Give me that thing. Let me tell you what I really think. Now, these two, Dickens and Collins, were friends for almost 20 years, from the time they met when they were acting in a play together until Dickens's death in 1870. They collaborated together in print and on the stage frequently. Wilkie's younger brother married Dickens' daughter, in fact, so they were relatives. In the book we're talking about Forster's biography, he said, quote, Wilkie Collins became, for all the rest of the life of Dickens, one of his dearest and most valued friends, end quote. Well, that's nice, but hmm. <laughs> what did Wilkie Collins say when it came time to read the biography? Well, here's, here are a few quotes that are passed along by The Guardian. These are from Collins's annotations. Barnaby Rudge came up. Collins wrote the weakest book that Dickens ever wrote. The second half of... Dombie and Son came up, and it got this in the margins. No intelligent person can have read it without astonishment at the badness of it. The mystery of Edwin Drood, the book that Dickens didn't finish, was, in Collins' words, quote, the melancholy work of a worn-out brain. Oliver Twist, he said, acknowledged it was a wonderful book, but he did point out that its construction was, quote, helplessly bad, end quote. He praised a character of Dickens, Nancy, by saying that she was the finest he ever did. And then he added that the same man who could create Nancy created the second Mrs. Dombey is the most incomprehensible anomaly that I know of in literature. End quote. And here's the one I like Forster. On the very first page, he wrote that Dickens was, quote, the most popular novelist of the century. And Collins. Wrote after Walter Scott. Meow. So what do we make of this? In some ways, I wish that it hadn't happened. I wish Dickens' friend had always stayed true and loyal. And, and Collins didn't write this for a publication. In The Woman in White, his most famous novel, he said that Dickens' Tale of Two Cities was the most perfect work of constructive art that has ever proceeded from his pen. He's not here to answer or explain. So I kind of hope they don't find the book. Maybe it's been kept secret and out of view for a reason. Maybe the purchaser burned it, hoping to keep alive our view of a friendship that seemed to be full of peace and love and not one of crabby grumbling. But we do have to kind of hope that it's found because we don't know that we've seen all of what Wilkie Collins has to say. There may be more annotations in there. Maybe he reveals something about the composition of Dickens' books or gives us more opinions that take us inside his mind and show us his thoughts. Nobody knew Dickens better than he did. But as the example of the lost book shows, we don't always know people as well as we think. Which brings us to Tom Holland and the Roman Empire. He doesn't have personal knowledge to draw upon, of course. He's using sources with different levels of detail and reliability. But the overall story is fantastic. This is his third book of Rome and its empire. First was Rubicon, The Triumph and the Tragedy of the Roman Republic, which took us up to the brink. Then Dynasty showed us the start of the empire And now Pax picks up the story from there. They're all excellent books, as are his books on the history of the Greco-Persian Wars. That one's called uh, Persian Fire. In the Shadow of the Sword, which covers the collapse of Roman and Persian power in the Near East. His translation of Herodotus. I could go on and on. I have a surprising number of Tom Holland books on my shelf. It seems I've been adding his books to my Christmas wish lists almost as long as he's been writing them and my family has come through with the purchases. They must be hoping I'll finally learn something. <laughs> I don't have his book about the first king of England or England's forgotten founder, Ethelstan and Ethelred, if I'm pronouncing those correctly. Ethel fled. I don't know what that is. Anyway, those will have to go on this year's... I guess I'll learn. Those will have to go on this year's list. and Along with this one, Pax. Okay. Let's get to it. Tom Holland is next. Hey grown ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay. Tom Holland is an award-winning historian of the ancient world, a translator of Greek and Roman classical texts, and a documentary writer. He's the author of several popular and incredibly readable books, including Rubicon, Persian Fire, and Dominion. He's here today to discuss his new book, Pax, which tells the story of war and peace in Rome's golden age. Tom Holland, welcome to the History of Literature.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So I almost wish we were having this conversation in the 1990s and I could have asked the novelist Tom Holland about Lord Byron and vampires. I'm wondering, do you... Well, you you still can. Oh, good, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think you'll return to the 19th century or are you settled in antiquity for good now?
1: Well, my previous book, Dominion, did briefly cover... I mean, it it covered the 19th century. So that Mm. Dominion is a kind of a history of the influence of Christianity on... The entire sweep of Western culture. So very, yeah. <laughs> very modest,
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: modest <laughs> book to write. But so there was quite a lot in that. The book covered the age of Napoleon, abolition of slavery, Darwinism. Uh, Andrew Carnegie featured. So I have ri- actually written about the 19th century, but I'm not planning to write about it as the main focus of my book no. Yeah, I'm pretty firmly moored in antiquity.
0: How about novels? I mean, I've heard that every novelist should try their hand at writing poetry and every poet should try to write a novel, but I wonder if the same is kind of true for historians. It seems like it's a good training in order to tell a narrative story to have taken a turn at writing novels.
1: I think it was, absolutely. So my background is much more in literature than in history. And I think that there's a sense in which history is probably the only academic discipline that is simultaneously a field of scholarship and a field of literature. Um, And the literary quality of a lot of what passes for history, I think, is very evident. And I think that's particularly the case if you're studying, say, ancient texts. I think a lot of what we call ancient history is actually, you know, it's an analysis of literary texts. Writers like Herodotus or Tacitus are, are great literary artists, as well as being historian. So I think in that sense, the boundaries between literature and history are pretty permeable. I mean, on the specifics of how I move from writing fiction to writing history, I think it can take writers time to work out exactly what the wellsprings of their inspiration are. Mm. So as a child, I was obsessed by history. It was my great love. And all the way through my, into my teens, I thought that that's what I would do. And then I fell in love with literature and decided actually I wanted to be a great novelist. And so studying literature would be a good preparation for ending up as the new Proust. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm, <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. ambition, But um, I-, I turned out not to be Proust to my <laughs> <laughs> shock and horror. <laughs>
2: um,
1: and so I ended up writing these Jean- novels. Um, you've alluded to one of them, Byron as a vampire, in which vampires appeared at various stages throughout history. And I realized as I was writing them that I was much more interested in the history than Mm -hmm. I was in the fiction, and that I resented having to make things up when actually the reality of the history seemed so much more interesting. And when I kind of, I'd been contracted to write various novels in this series, and when I earned out that contract, I thought, do you know, actually, what really moves me, what really stirs me, is history itself. and I suppose going back to Proust, I mean Proust's novel is all about the the hold that the past has on the present and how you can't really escape the hold of memory and I realized that the most vital memory for me wasn't things from my kind of you know experience I'd had with i don't know family or friends or whatever but it was the experience of writing history and so in a sense the the books that i writing about Greece or Rome or whatever, I'm being as true to my memories of childhood, in a sense, as Proust was when he wrote about the taste of Madeleine.
0: Mm, right. And
1: so I'm determined to compare myself to proof. Yeah. A way. But I hope the listeners will forgive me for
0: that. I've read interviews where you've talked about the childhood fascination you had with antiquity and you compared it with a, a fascination with dinosaurs or science fiction, mm-hmm. the world of science fiction, and the splendor and the terror. What is it about antiquity that inspires these feelings, do you think?
1: I think that it is, um, I think more recent fields of history. Obviously, the display of glamour and terror and power are more ambivalent, more complicated. Mm. But I think the Romans are at a sufficient remove that we can kind of revel in the spectacle of the Colosseum without unduly worrying about what that says about us morally, that we find gladiatorial combat, for instance, fascinating.
0: Oh, Interesting. Yeah.
1: I think there is a kind of statute of limitations operating there. And I think that, again, that is a kind of parallel with dinosaurs, that that a small child can thrill to the spectacle of, I don't know, a tyrannosaur feeding on the corpse of a, a, a triceratops in a way that might be more unsettling if he was looking at, a, I don't know, a lion feasting on a wildebeest. The fact that they are removed back in time, precisely the fact that they are extinct, gives free reign for aspects of fascination that perhaps our moral selves know are more complicated.
0: Yeah, right. What might be an example of something that doesn't have that removed? Something like if you were really uh, looking at the the power and the capacity of the British Empire, you'd feel like, well, we all know this is kind of built on the backs of colonialism, or or in the earlier days, it's funded by slavery, or...
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the most controversial one would be the Nazis.
0: Yeah, right.
1: The awful truth is, is that the 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 Nazis have the best uniforms, yeah. and I think there is clearly a sense in which they do have a kind of malign power and glamour, but obviously that's hedged about with unspeakable kind of moral caveats. And the Nazis, you know, they modelled their spectacle often very consciously on Rome. You know, the 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 eagles and the standards and the banners. Hitler was very impressed with stability. As, you know, I mean, the the reason they're called fascists, the fasces were the rods that were born on the shoulders of the, the guards that accompanied Roman magistrates. And the look, certainly in Italy, but also to a degree in Nazi Germany, was modelled on classical antiquity. And I think that the actual character of Rome the Roman Empire is so unset would be so unsettling to us if it existed in the present. But contemplating that kind of mingled glamour and terror that Nazi Germany evokes for us gives us a sense of just how important it is that we have this separation of two thousand years between Rome and us. I'm not I'm not saying that the Romans were Nazis, but I'm certainly saying that the Nazis were inspired by the Romans
0: Right. I'm sort of an amateur historian of of the ancient world, certainly not an expert. But whenever I do go into that, I find myself, you know, I'm rooting for Julius Caesar. And I'm I'm kind of, you know, but then I'll catch myself and think, well, if I were living at that time, I would not be... You know the emperor. I'd I'd be one of those who are thrown to the lions, and and you know, or or I'd be a galley slave or something. And I think, well, the, if this were happening today, I wouldn't be rooting for the republic to end. And yet, I find myself drawn to these compelling figures in history.
1: I think. I mean, I think Caesar is a, a classic example. He's an unbelievably charismatic figure. He's on an individual level a, a very charming figure, but mm-hmm. he's also terrifying and. It's been estimated by uh, by Plutarch, who's writing a century or so after Caesar's death, that his conquest of Gaul witnessed the slaughter of a million people and the enslavement of another million. Mm. So those those are near genocidal figures, and yet, as you say, Caesar is a figure of intense charisma. And I remember, as a child, I first really came across the story of Caesar's conquest of Gaul. It, Through two books. One of them was a book about the Roman army. It had a brilliant illustration on the cover of um, the Siege of Alesia, which was Caesar's greatest victory over the Gauls, um, basically secured him the conquest of of Gaul. And it showed Romans and Gauls fighting, and there were spears protruding and blood going everywhere. And it reminded myself as a horrible little boy, of all the illustrations of dinosaurs being, you know, Triceratops being savaged by Tyrannosaurs. Mm. It was that sense of violence, and I found it exciting. I mean, you know, I was kind of gripped by it. Uh, It seemed thrilling. At the same time, I was reading um, Asterix books, kind of French cartoons, which is set set about a a village of indomitable Gauls who haven't been conquered by the Romans. And in that, no one ever dies. Mm. (laughs) The worst that happened. I's that people may end up in a tree with stars going around their heads, <laughs> so there's no indication that anyone dies at all, and so for me it the thought of the Gallic Wars they were simultaneously thrilling and yet harmless yeah and right I think it's you know that, that I've talked about how a, a childhood fascination kind of serves as the wellsprings for writing about it in um, in later life, but I think there is also a sense in which you have to overcome your initial childhood instincts. Because you do have to say, I think when you write about the Romans, what it meant for the peoples that they conquered, the peoples that they defeated, you really have to kind of stare into the, the depths of a people who were very, very alien and very, very frightening. Yeah.
0: There's one more piece before we turn to your book that I want to ask you about. And when we talk about these being kind of a, uh, we're somewhat removed from them. It's it's almost difficult to put ourselves in their place. And that's the importance of Christianity and the 2,000 years that we've had with this overlay of, of Christian thinking and philosophy and, and morality. And, and mm-hmm. it, it's hard for us to get outside of that Framework, and yet, in order to truly understand the Romans, we would need to kind of set that aside. Is that possible to do, or how do you how do you analyze what Romans were thinking and what motivated them without letting all of the overlay of Christianity interfere?
1: Yeah, so I was always very much on the side of the Romans as opposed to the Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very, very much team Pontius Pilate, <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> as opposed to team Jesus. These irritants. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> ancient Rome with gladiators and purple and legions, brilliant. And then all the Christians turn up, and it's all miserable. And they just go around wagging their fingers, <laughs> saying you can't do that. And uh, you know how how disappointing for me. Ancient Rome, blue skies, Christianity, grey skies. It's you know it's. November drizzle. Um, <laughs> and I I I basically the experience of writing say, about the Romans in the age of Julius Caesar or the Spartans in the fifth century BC or whatever, I found the process of trying to see the world through their eyes so so kind of upsetting in so in, in, in all kinds of ways. And I was thinking, well, for instance, Caesar slaughtering a million people and enslaving another and feeling no qualms about this whatsoever, not only that, but it's kind of celebrated. Uh, You know, Romans have great parades through the streets of Rome celebrating triumphs in which casualty figures are listed and scenes of, you know, unspeakable violence are displayed. And I, I was writing Rubicon, my first book in which I was writing about this, against the backdrop of the Iraq war in the early 21st century. In which the keynote was for the invaders of, of Iraq were boasting about how few people they were beating, they were killing. Mm. I said, well, what's the difference? How did it happen? How did this change happen? And it seemed to me that Christianity was the key to that. Mm. And so that's how I ended up writing Dominion was basically realizing that when we look at the pre-Christian world, our glasses are smeared. With all kinds of Christian influence that we may not even realize. And it requires a massive, I think, conscious effort of will to get behind the, the Christian assumptions. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: when I write about antiquity, that's really what I'm trying to do. And if Dominion is very much a book about how irreducibly Christian we all are in the modern West, whether we're believing Christians or not, whether we're atheists, whatever, humanists, secularists, we all. Have imbibed so many assumptions that derive from the the Christian culture that we, you know, that has shaped the West for 2000 years, that it takes, I think, a much larger effort of will to get beyond it than many people realize.
0: Yeah. So those those things that we that might get in our way, the smears on our glasses might be things like turn the other cheek or you could be punished in the afterlife for things that you do here versus, you know, you could ascend to heaven based on your conduct here and that kind of thing.
1: Well, I said how the, the Nazis were influenced by the Romans. The Nazis seem to me to serve us as embodiments of evil because they consciously repudiated Mm. among many other fundamental Christian doctrines the idea that there is a kind of inherent dignity in being the crucified rather than the crucifier in being the slave rather than the master um, in being the victim rather than the victimizer. To the Romans it would have been unthinkable that any of those points could be true for the Romans power is something that is pretty much taken for granted. Now, who should have power within the context of the Roman state, how it should be deployed, one thing, but nobody respects weakness as a positive, really, in the Roman world, except for Christians.
0: Right. That makes sense. Okay, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about PACs. Okay, we're back. Tom Holland, so you've written on Rome before, and Rubicon, and Dynasty. Does Pax pick up where those left off?
1: It does. I mean, I hasten to say people who haven't read those two previous books, Pax is completely self-contained. Mm-hmm. But it does continue. Yeah, it continues uh, the story of, of the Roman Empire, and it goes from the death of Nero, always a popular <laughs>
2: <laughs> popular
1: emperor with the fans, Fan favorite, Um, with his mother murdering and his Rome burning, or did he? And he is the last lineal descendant of Augustus, Hmm. who is the founder of the the Roman monarchy that emerges in the wake of the kind of the self destruction of the Republic. He restores Rome to peace after the years of civil war and ends up a god. And so people who can claim to have blood in the blood of Augustus in their veins are seen by the Roman people as worthy to rule. But with Nero gone huge problem because no one is left who has augustus's blood in their veins and so this opens up the question well who now should rule as caesar and the attempt to find an answer to that results in the year after nero's death dear nero dies in 68 Yet 80 69 you see four emperors in succession very mm. quick succession ruling the empire and basically it's an attempt to solve the problem of you know, what is the basis for legitimacy? And, you know, I'm not giving away any spoilers when I say that the ultimate basis for legitimacy is having military force at your back. So although the title of the book is Pax, Peace, it's a peace that has to be upheld at the point of the sword. And so for a book that has Pax as its title, there's quite a lot of fighting in this book.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so what did that make life like for the let's call it the leadership class, people who were really at the top of society, did it kind of throw them into turmoil that there was no longer stability, but that there would be a lot of shifting alliances and and the potential for different people to assume the throne, so to speak?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a precarious time and therefore it was very unsettling because there hadn't been civil war in Rome for over a century. Mm. And people had assumed that the foundations of the the new kind of monarchical order that had emerged under Augustus were completely secure and to discover that wasn't the case was incredibly unsettling and over the course of that year AD 69, there were people who thought that the whole fabric of Roman order was going to collapse and with it, the very order of the world itself. They felt that the gods had, had turned against the Roman people, that civilization itself was doomed and it was A a very frightening time. The great achievement of the Roman state, however, is that after this convulsion, this great spasm, order is restored. Mm. And in due course, Rome embarks on the period that, to this day, is recognized as, as the supreme golden age of classical order.
0: Yeah, right. And what did that mean for the everyday citizen, the commoners? Did they also feel this uncertainty, or were they just kind of going about their business, was this a, a wealthy period for them or a period of struggle?
1: It, specifically in AD 69, it was a matter of luck.
2: Mm. <laughs> so
1: for most people, I think it it, it it barely intruded on them. Yeah, But uh, there was a city called Cremona in North Italy, which had been a great bulwark of Roman power where back when Rome's empire had pretty much been confined to Italy, it had been a, a kind of outpost of Roman power against barbarian invaders from the north. But by AD 69, you know, that role had long since gone. But suddenly it finds itself again in the kind of the eye of the storm, and two battles are fought outside its walls. And after the second battle, the entire city is torched and, and destroyed. Um, and that is seen by people in the, in, in this period as absolutely devastating, a kind of a glimpse of the horrors that, that might burst over the world completely unexpectedly. I mean, no one two years before would have imagined that a city in Italy would be completely wiped out. In Rome, however, there is street fighting in Rome. An emperor is murdered in the forum. Another is captured. Uh, after mass street fighting, uh, and sliced the pieces on the steps that lead from the Forum up to the Capitol. The Great Temple of Jupiter on the Capitol Hill, the most sacred temple in the whole of Rome, is torched and burnt. So Rome does suffer damage, but you get a sense reading the sources, and again, it's kind of interesting to know how accurate this is, but I suspect that it wouldn't have been written if it wasn't articulating something quite profound about the relationship of the Roman people to the spectacles of violence that they're witnessing, it's it's often said that people watch this street fighting, they watch these executions, they watch these displays of violence as though they are spectators in an amphitheatre uh, or a circus. Yeah. And that sense in which a lot of the, the violence is actually quite performative, I think is fascinating, and tells you something about the appetite of the Roman people for displays of violence, but also the sense in which they've been kind of distanced from what that might actually mean.
0: Yeah. In terms of their own rights or their own, I mean, did they feel like they were living through an age of tyranny?
1: Certainly uh, among the elites. So let's say uh, columnists for the New York Times equivalent.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: um, Certainly they, they had not liked Nero. They felt that Nero was, was was appalling, but there were lots in Rome who thought Nero had been tremendous. Um, that he'd been great fun. that He'd laid on all kinds of entertainments. That he'd been, you know, he'd been good value.
2: Right.
1: And over the decades that follow, by and large, I think people in Rome are, are pretty content with the uh, the order that a succession of emperors provide them, because this is the period in which the, the most celebrated of all Roman monuments is built, the Colosseum, and. Mm-hmm. The entertainments that are laid on in the Colosseum are of a spectacular order. It's, this is also the period when the, the satirist juvenile famously sums up the duty of the emperors as being providing the people with bread and circuses, food, sustenance, and entertainments. And I think that, that in a pre-industrial society, if you're being regularly fed and entertained, you know, you're pretty happy with your lot.
0: Right, right. It's not as if they feel like this is a horrible period. We can't criticize the leadership or anything. That wasn't necessarily a thing that they valued.
1: Well, so the emperor in the uh, year 8069 who emerges victorious is a guy called Vespasian, who is a prodigiously effective general. He had been appointed by Nero to suppress a rebellion in Judea, which culminates in the destruction of Jerusalem and, and notoriously the temple by his son Titus in AD 70. So Vespasian is a very formidable military figure. That's why he ends up winning. But at the same time, he is not of aristocratic stock. He's from peasants, ultimately from peasants who had lived in the hills to the north of Rome. And he is very happy to play the the role of the man of the people. So it was said of him, and anyone who looks at a a portrait bust of him will immediately recognize the justice of this comment, that he looked like a man who was straining to have a shit. And someone said this to Vespasian's face, and instead of, you know, flying off on one, Vespasian thought it was very funny.
2: Mm.
1: And Vespasian is also the, the man who came up with one of the best ever dying comments, which is that he fell ill, and he said as he Succumb to his illness, oh dear, I think I'm becoming a god. Kind of joke about the fact that <laughs> emperors, effective emperors were often deified. Right. So you can see that emperors did not need to rest their authority on a kind of day-by-day reign of terror. Vespasian was pretty popular. Trajan, who, who came to power a few decades after Vespasian, was remembered by the people as the best of emperors the Optimus Princeps, it was possible for emperors to be really very, very popular indeed. However, that doesn't ignore the fact that the underpinning of imperial power, as it was for the entire order of the empire, ultimately rested on the control that the emperor had over a whole range of armies that were posted across the span of, of the empire. Because imperial power depended on the emperor exercising a monopoly of violence, It was the fact that in AD 69, there wasn't a monopoly of violence. There was just a host of different people, all summoning armies to fight one another, that had led the Roman Empire close to disaster. The restoration of that order, the peace in the capital, the peace in the provinces, the ability of people day by day to live their life at peace, ultimately rested on the fact that the emperor had control over something that was completely exceptional, which was a vast quantity of of highly professional, highly well-trained legions stationed mainly across the frontiers that could, if need be, be summoned.
0: Hmm. I feel like this question, I feel like I'm asking uh, uh, someone about the, the tracks on their new album. Uh, we see, we're see we going to see Nero's downfall, the year of the four emperors. I guess the destruction of Jerusalem and Pompeii will be in here.
1: Yeah, Pompeii. So, yeah, the, the eruption of, of Vesuvius. And uh, one of the great things I discovered in writing it, which I hadn't properly realized before, is that if you integrate not just the written sources for it, not just the archaeological sources, but the volcanological interpretations of what happened, mm. it's possible to give a kind of almost hour-by-hour hour account of what was happening. And it's one of the great, obviously, it's one of the great disaster stories of history. So, yeah, so you've got the destruction of Pompeii. You've got the building of the Colosseum, the inauguration of it. You have Agricola, the governor of Britain, who was the father-in-law of Tacitus, almost conquering the whole of Britain and then failing because uh, there's a rebellion and the Danube and legions have to be shoved there. You have the golden age of Trajan, his conquests of Dacia. His beautification, or rather his kind of monumentalization of central Rome, which is you know, still staggering witness to it to this very day. And you have Hadrian. So you have him building his wall, and you have him beautifying Athens, and you have his strange relationship with this boy Antinous, beautiful Greek who ends up drowning in very, very mysterious circumstances. So certainly raise an eyebrow from Hercule Poirot on the Nile, so death on the Nile. So there's all kinds of, yeah, I mean, amazing, amazing episodes, amazing sweep of time.
0: Yeah. Does Christianity come in at the very end of your book, or when does that sort of become prominent?
1: Uh, well, again, going back to dinosaurs, I say that the Christians in this are like tiny mammals in a Mesozoic
2: yeah. ecosystem.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but although in the due course, the mammals will come to inherit the earth and Christians will come to inherit the earth, but now we're very much focusing on the dinosaurs in the form of the Romans. And so because I'm trying to give a portrait of the Roman world through their eyes, I'm, uh, to the degree that I can, I'm trying to, to purge the kind of the moral perspective that we would have as the heirs of Christianity and to look at the world as through Roman eyes. And that's why the Christians barely intrude, because the Romans, they are pretty much nothing.
0: Right. So a question you probably get asked a lot. I'm kind of wondering whether you find this to be an interesting thing to think about, or if it is kind of gets in your way as a historian who's trying to tell the story of Rome. And that is, at least in America, we have this, it seems like we can't resist looking at Rome and thinking, is this us? You know, are we sliding towards empire or is this moment our Rubicon or is that leader our yeah. Caesar or maybe yeah. our Sulla? Is, is that something that, that you find illuminating or do you think that's, that's sort of a bit of a distraction?
1: Okay, so a couple of points on that. The first is, I think it is much more distinctive to the United States than it is, say, to Britain. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that the United States consciously modelled itself Mm -hmm. on the Mm -hmm. Roman example when you expelled the British king. Yeah, The Romans had expelled a king and founded a republic, and the founding fathers were commemorated as Roman figures. So, you know, that colossal statue of Washington with his wig, but otherwise (laughs) dressed as (laughs) a Roman. So you have all that kind of stuff. And that's why you have a Senate. It's why you have a Capitol Hill. It's why Washington looks as Roman as it does.
2: Right, right. So
1: it's obviously very important to the way that Americans traditionally have understood themselves, is as a republic, a res publica, that kind of draws its inspiration from the Roman example. And that in turn, I think, means that Americans right from the beginning, I mean, you know, within years of the founding of, of the Republic, have been worrying about, firstly, that the Republic may collapse and become an autocracy, that a Caesar may arise, and that, you know, the constitutional order of the Republic may kind of implode. And of course, more pertinently, that that the American order itself may collapse. Mm, mm-hmm. as the Roman Empire collapsed. And that, I thought, was... It was often pointed out, but it did seem to me to lurk as a kind of subliminal fear in the image of, what was it, the uh, the QAnon shaman
2: who mm.
1: burst into the... Uh, as part of the invasion of the Capitol. The fact that he looks like a painting of a goth in a 19th century...
2: Yeah,
3: <laughs>
1: ...dialama right. of the sack of Rome... <laughs> I think gave a whole kind of resonance.
0: Yeah, here they come. <laughs>
1: yeah, because it was simultaneously, oh my god, this is the collapse of the republic.
0: Um, mm-hmm. The barbarians have arrived. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that kind of thing. But at the same time, it was also the fall of Rome. It's the Goths sacking Rome, and you know, yeah. So I just I can see why it's so resonant for Americans, but the other thing that I want to say is, is me personally is that when I wrote Rubicon as I said it was against the backdrop of the Iraq war
2: mm-hmm.
1: and nine eleven, and I did find all kinds of resonances there an imperial republic faced with terrorists and engaging in wars in the Middle East and all that kind of thing and and Rubicon was had kind of chapter headings like the war on terror known unknowns and things like that mm-hmm. but I, I over the 20 years since I wrote that, 25 years now, almost, the sense in which the Romans are actually profoundly different to us has become much stronger to me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I think that people who have read Rubicon and perhaps recognized the parallels that I was drawn in between the Roman and the American republics, reading Pax will find the Romans are much stranger people in that. And that reflects the evolution in my understanding of them as it's being more distant, really, than I'd appreciated when I when I wrote *Rubicon*. I think.
0: Right. Oh, that's interesting. My last question: How did literature affect the Romans uh, of this era that you're you're focused on here? Can we read the literature and access the minds of the Romans directly, or do we need the assistance of historical context or? What's the relationship of Romans to literature and what does that mean for us today?
1: Well, most people in the Roman Empire were illiterate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not all of them could read Latin. Uh, Literature was very much a kind of elite activity. But having said that, you have two of the foundational figures, not just in classical literature, but in the whole sweep of Western literature. One of them I've already mentioned, Juvenal, who is the supreme Roman satirist, Mm -hmm. his portrayals of life in Rome are unforgettable, full of kind of shocking imagery that still has the, you know, we still recognize and say bread and circus being one, who guards the guards, all these kind of phrases. And Juvenal has maintained his ability to shock. So in a progressive era, he remains as shocking as he was in an imperial era. And his influence on the course of satire over the past centuries, I think is, has been enormous. And I think he remains a, a considerable influence. The other figure is a historian, Tacitus, who I think is by miles the greatest Roman historian mm-hmm. and whose portrayal of the darkening of Roman political life, the collapse of republican liberty into a bloodstained autocracy remains the kind of the primal text illustrating how liberty can be extinguished, and Tacitus was a great inspiration to many historians who wrote about both communist and fascist dictatorships. So, Juvenal and Tacitus, I think, are two of the the supreme figures in the history of Western literature, and they retain their their influence to this day.
0: We began with a, a feeling that you have kind of given up the dream of being the next Proust, but maybe the dream of being a, a Tacitus <laughs> for our time is not such a bad uh, goal as well.
1: Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I wouldn't presume to write I can't push the, you uh, into that one, I guess.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: although I think there are several candidates you might feature in a Tacitian history of the present day.
0: Okay, well, the book is called Pax. The author has been our guest. Tom Holland, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And finally today, we hear from Honor Cargill Martin. After she and I discussed her book about the Empress Messalina, I asked her this special question. Okay, we're joined now by Honor Cargill-Martin, author of Messalina, Empress, Adulteress, Libertine, the story of the most notorious woman of the Roman world. Honor, this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written.
3: Uh, it's a very big question. I mean, sh- surely the answer is just the longest one I could find. <laughs> if it's going to be the last, the last book that I ever read,
2: <laughs> just reading like the full works
3: of Shakespeare incredibly slowly. <laughs> but my first instinct when I read this question was Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, oh, and I was like, you know yeah. what? That's such a basic answer. I should think of a book that hasn't been written. Go with something like really creative. But I just. I kept coming back to it and it's the honest answer of what I would genuinely want my last book to be because I find it such a comforting book. Mm. And I also find it such a funny and uplifting book. I think it is genius, Mm
2: -hmm. beautifully
3: written, hilarious. And I also think that it really encapsulates just a lot about humanity and just human life and kind of people's foibles in a way that is incredibly affectionate. And I think that that is what I would want, and, and romantic as well, and kind of um, joyful at the end. And I think that is what I would want my last kind of interaction with art and literature to be.
0: Mm. And with the world, too. Every time I open that book and start reading it, I'm struck by how much I admire Jane or the narrator's just take on life. It's so... It's- uh, It just fits the way that I like to view things and wish I could view things in a sharper way. And, and just the way she sort of sees through pretension and finds the mild humor in just being alive and being a human being, interacting with other human beings.
3: Exactly. And I think that she reveals a lot of the ridiculousness of humanity without it ever feeling cool. Yeah. And I think that that kind of almost slightly ridiculous stupid kind of just way of being. is so human. And I think that that is what I would want to be left with.
0: Yeah, right. I always felt like Jane Austen would be the perfect person to attend a party with where the two of you are sitting in the corner and you're kind of watching things together and you know that after the party's over, you're going to be able to talk about things and that she would have noticed all the things that you wanted her to notice because you wanted someone else to share that with you.
3: Oh, for sure. And I feel like there are all these moments in Pride and Prejudice where you almost feel like it's that moment that you couldn't make eye contact with someone. And you've both (laughs) kind of seen the same thing. Um, And it's just that slightly knowing thing. But what I love about it is that it reveals all of that without never feels malicious. Right. And I think that celebration of human weakness is quite uplifting.
0: Yeah. I mean, what better for that final moment to think that it's there's weakness and frailty. And obviously, we are not permanent, and we're not larger than life or anything like that. We're all just human, we'll return to dust and so on. But it was a good ride while we were here.
3: Exactly. And I also think it's a book that makes you feel incredibly, because it feels so modern, even though it was written Mm -hmm. so long ago. Um, And it feels so relatable to me. And I think that that is also something that I would want reminded of this kind of idea that there is this almost three thread in human nature.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jane has has gone before you and people will go after, but there is something that unites us all. Exactly. Mm. Honor Cargill Martin, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature.
3: Thank you for having me. <laughs>
0: Okay, there we go. Thank you for joining me today, and thank you to Honor Cargill Martin for that little dose of Jane Austen. Boy, we really played the hits today, didn't we? Pride and Prejudice, Charles Dickens and Wilkie Collins, and Tom Holland on the Roman Empire. I feel like I've been standing at the door handing out candy. My thanks also, of course, to Tom Holland. Do check out his book, for yourself or for that fan of the Roman Empire in your life. You or he or she or they won't be disappointed. We'll be back soon with a new translation from the Yiddish, which we'll talk about with the translator. And we've got pirates around the corner, or should I say on deck. Although in baseball terms, I think it's more like in the bucket or in the, in the, double or triple bucket. We'll have have something on Shakespeare's first folio, more on that in this anniversary year, and we'll have Laurie Frankel here for a look at Shakespeare's late play, The Tempest. Mike Palindrome will join us for a double-barrowed episode, or episodes on some D.H. Lawrence short stories, and many more episodes are in the works as well, including one on The Venerable bead just who was he and why was he so venerable. Plus, some Henry David Thoreau. Lots of good stuff in store for you. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.